0: And welcome to the next class. I'm Rob Burtzel, your host. Very glad to have you all with us. We have two great guests. One is a, a second timer, a two-time guest on the next class, joining the, the uh, amazing crowd of Father Foley and Jeb Bush. Josh Hale is, uh, is one of three second-time guests in the next class. Josh, welcome back.
1: Great to be back. I I don't know what I did the first time (laughs) other than maybe I failed. And so I'm getting a second attempt. So I
0: appreciate that. (laughs) No, it's great to have you back. Uh, As our listeners may recall, Josh is the CEO of the Big Shoulders Fund in Chicago. We'll have him give us a brief uh, overview of Big Shoulders in a second. And then Chiz Chandler, welcome to the next class. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. It's great to have you here. Chiz uh, is the longtime headmaster at Salisbury School uh, Boys Boarding School in Connecticut um, and brings to us uh, a lot of leadership experience. But um, let's start with Josh. Josh, for our listeners, just give a quick overview of your work at Big Shoulders.
1: Big Shoulders Fund is a charitable uh, nonprofit organization was started back in the late 80s, 1986. To support um, Catholic schools in under resourced, underrepresented communities on, in Chicago. And so, schools where there are um, uh, 20% or more living in poverty and uh, title eligible, and um, helping those schools to really succeed. So, that today means we serve 72 schools in Chicago, primarily in the South and West Side. A few of those are up in Waukegan, but those 72 schools have uh, close to 20,000 children. 80% uh, identify as children of color, and um, about uh, 73% are living out of middle poverty. Um, we recently expanded our program. We're now working in Northwest Indiana. We have 20 schools we work with there, um, and they are very similar to schools we've worked with over the years in terms of population served. But also, you know, we really provide scholarships, so access, a lot of programmatic and operational, so professional development, academics, uh leadership pipeline and then we also uh focus a fair amount on enrichment for students ensuring that they continue on trajectory towards success in life and perhaps the the most significant the two most significant things is our our model has continued to evolve we now um have entered into a a, about four years ago a legal agreement the Archdiocese we're helping to manage um 37 of our network of schools and so really working more closely with a group of principals and leaders to really strengthen um, the network and to ensure that they not only are viable, but to become stronger and continue to um, remain strong community-based organizations. And the second really critical thing is that these children succeed at high levels. Our students ultimately are graduating college at two times the national rate. for our black alumni, uh, that number would be uh, close to 3%, three times the national rate. And for our Latino alumni, four times the national rate. And
0: uh, they go on to become great citizens. Um Josh, that's, that's awesome. And on our previous episode, we had um, a friend of both yours and mine, Katie Everett, talking about exactly that that management organization. Um 37 is a lot of schools. How do you um how do you manage 37 schools? Uh so you don't become a district, you don't become, you know, what what Katie was saying is just an impossible task. Yeah,
1: we you know it's a it's an interesting um, you know case study at some point that we have evolved into this. Um, we didn't you know wake up one day and say we're gonna we're gonna run schools, we're gonna manage schools. We evolved into it, and our structure lent towards more project based management. So it started with working with principals on specific issues. So it might be around financial management, uh, marketing, enrollment. Um, Reading scores are low, so professional development, it might have to do with we're not able to attract and retain teachers, help us. So it's project based. And so the way we are able to effectively manage without creating, you know, large bureaucracy is really sharing talent across the network from our team and and working in multiple situations on an ongoing basis. So as a project manager and then there's subject matter experts that move across schools. I would say the other part is we always talk about we try to have the network feed off itself, that we are trying to employ teachers and leaders in our schools to help work with one another to manage and grow the network. And so that means we're able to pay people more because they're going out and working, whether that's creating professional learning communities or that is distributing a leader. So Chiz is a great leader in one school. Why don't we distribute his leader over multiple schools? And underneath that, we have apprenticeships. So really trying to, to strengthen it in different ways. But I would say, you know, at at a high level is a a much smarter team at Big Showless Fund who manages all that. They don't let me get too close to the academics. They're concerned about my IQ. But I've observed how they how they do that. And so uh, but we are we are really trying to to, to not fall in the trap of, you know, we have all the answers at headquarters and the answers are in the community. Each community is unique and allow uh, them to tell us the issues and try to come back with solutions that then can be shared across the network.
0: So like christina um who's going to be joining the Eileen seminar she now oversees three schools yes that's exactly right and under her she has apprentice leaders yes
1: so we can go back with christine so that's a great example so she we got to know her early in her career she was a teacher certainly had leadership qualities our team had identified her and said we want to help support and she was interested in growing and so we made her lead teacher in a professional learning community, working with other teachers and, you know, a data coach or a literacy coach who was, where was working with them. And then she moved up into other leaders. She worked with us on our Staddle camp in Wyoming, or, you know, she worked in some sort of STEM program. Um, and then she took on uh, being an assistant principal, then ultimately a principal. And then because she was so effective as a principal, we have, it's called Selvin fellows, but I would call it the YPO mm-hmm. of principals. That we identified six key performance indicators across our schools and it has to do with you know culture and climate as you know five essentials um academic scores absolute growth uh, enrollment stability or growth alumni fundraising uh, matriculation so eighth grade onto high quality high school or high school under college or career and on those kpis this the principles that rise up we actually put them into this group called sullivan fellows she is one of them and they are um one we compensate them more and there's a kicker if they stay, make it five years and uh, then it resets but they also get professional coaching and supports along the way as part of that group and so she really continued to develop and we saw that and we said we should put her into a new role of managing two schools now ultimately three We've done that now probably in four or five instances. And it's been enormously helpful because we put a, a resident underneath those solvent fellows and they get a, a year or two to learn from a high performing principal before they are put in the position to the past. It was like, you know, someone left the, the principal at the school, it was like, you know, any teacher want to be a principal and, or you went to the market and tried to find someone to come in to fit in the culture and climate, which is really difficult. So. Uh,
0: Christine is a great example of that. Yeah, I'm excited to have her out at the Eiley seminar Uh, in March. She, I think, will be a great contributor. Um, Chiz, Salisbury School, our listeners are are mostly Catholic school leaders, but I think there's a lot we can learn from from our friends in the private school market. So tell us about the school that you ran for 18 years, I think.
2: Yeah, I was actually um, uh, a faculty member before I was appointed headmaster. So I I spent... um, Thirty plus years, you know, on the Salisbury School campus, and um, Salisbury is a uh, boys' school founded in the Episcopal tradition. We have a chapel program, um, community service, and and uh, you know, other programs that that um, are similar to what you might find at a at a, at a Catholic school. Mostly boarding, three hundred students, one hundred and fifty employees, um, about a twenty million dollar annual budget. At, uh, when I left uh, three years ago, and um, really exciting work and um, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed a, a really uh, fabulous career there and I'm and,
0: um, very grateful. And um, <clears throat> some of our listeners may not be aware that there are a number of Catholic boarding schools. Uh, Chis- there are. Chiz and I through our work at Amerigo work with uh, Villanova Prep, Woodside Priory, Marianapolis, uh Georgetown Prep, all long, tradition Catholic boarding schools. So they um, they have been in, in that business too. But um, let's- There's a neighbor of
2: ours in Connecticut, known uh Canterbury School in New Milford, which is a Catholic boarding school, very good
0: school. Interesting, okay. Um, so let's get into our discussion today. Um, so Josh, you obviously work with a lot of school leaders, Chiz, you were one for a long time. Um, the job has gotten a lot harder uh, from the leaders that i work with over the past five years. Um, can you talk about um, why it's gotten harder and, and what you see as the, the greatest challenges school leaders face today? And Chiz, why don't we start with you?
2: Um, you know, in the independent school world, and the the boarding school world where I functioned, um, there's no question that the last 25 years has seen dramatic change in in how one runs a school. And And I, I'll cite a couple of things. Um, as a result, though, uh, it's interesting to note that... Um, when I retired from my job after 18 years, um, I was called a dinosaur by, <laughs> by the uh, headhunter who was, uh, in tasked with finding my replacement. And, um, you know, I always thought that was funny because independent schools like Salisbury really prize continuity, um, tradition and, and, um, but the challenges of, of leading a school have resulted in I think the average tenure of a independent school leader now in in, in our space is like five to seven years. I would, um, I would and I know to we're, we're gonna talk about we're gonna talk about fundraising later, but that has a direct impact on fundraising. I mean, one of the things when I first became headmaster at Salisbury, I I, um, I was thirty-seven years old. I hadn't done a lot of fundraising, and it takes a while to learn how to to do that. And the biggest part of fundraising for me was building relationships with your key donors. And I, I know we're gonna talk about fundraising later, but the, um, when we're talking about challenges of how it's changed, um, that's that's not a good thing for independent schools, in my opinion. I think continuity uh, is really good for schools. It, it allows you to um, really project, whether it's on your social media or on your website or anything. The, the, who you are, what your mission is. Um, and, and it doesn't change as, as new school leaders go in and out the door. Um, the other thing that I, 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 saw as, as, um, changing over those 20 years was the, the role of the board in, in leading a school. When I, um, was, was fortunate enough to be appointed at Salisbury, I had a great board chair who said, look, this is your school. I'm here to support you. Um, let's talk whenever you want to talk. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm your wingman, but I'm not going to tell you how to run the place, Mm -hmm. Uh, which was so refreshing and and, and a little scary too, (laughs) because he basically lobbed it all on my shoulders, but um, Mm -hmm. I loved it. And, and then I, what I saw over the past 25 years and, and the time that I was head is more Um, encroachment on that line between governance and management, you know, the headmaster or the head of school is supposed to manage and the board is supposed to govern. Um, And, and those lines um, are tricky and, and with, you know, different cultural upheavals and, and so on and the the political culture, it, it, it got, it got crazy. And, and um, so those were some of the, 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 the things that I I noticed, and um, you know, we were so lucky at Salisbury. The, the parent body was terrific. They believed in the school. They believed in the leadership of the school. Very, very little parental interference. Um, being a boarding school, you obviously don't you don't see parents every day, so that that's different than than being a Catholic day school. Um, but uh, and and the kids were the kids were fabulous. They didn't change. That was the one constant. And, and, you know, whenever I, whenever I had a tough day, I, I would kind of get up from my desk and leave the office and walk around usually in the afternoon and kids are playing sports or whatever. And, and it, it would remind me of why I was there and why I loved my job. It, it was all about the kids.
0: I love that chiz that, that final comment. Uh, I can just see you walking around campus and knowing probably every kid's name. Uh, oh,
2: absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's that's the joy of the work. That's- it wasn't the budgets and the, you know, the working with the board and, you know, all that kind of minutia. It was face to face, person to person, smile to smile, believing in kids, um, instilling self-confidence. I'll tell you, the the best moment of my week was we had we started our day with chapel um, twice a week on Tuesday mornings and Friday mornings and I would stand on the steps of the chapel and shake every boy's hand as he walked in the door and call him by name on purpose to let him know that I knew who he was and that he was loved and that the headmaster had his back and it you know and I did that with the faculty too and and but for the boys it was such a moment where you know if they were you know mopey because it was early in the morning and and you'd see this smile flash and um, then in COVID, we, we, we dropped the, the handshake and went with a fist pump because, you know, you weren't supposed to touch it. <laughs> but uh, uh, just that, that literally two seconds or three seconds with a kid where the headmaster would say the boy's name and he would look, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd look into each other's eyes and, and know that, that there was a connection. And, and, and he felt, I think, a, that an adult in his life was really in his court. That's awesome. And
0: reminds me, Josh, of uh, our friend, Father Gartland, who would yeah, greet. Yeah, same thing. Every morning, uh, Chiz, he was the second president of the original Christ School, and he would greet them every morning, and he'd say, good morning, Saints. Good morning, Saints. Yeah. And uh, But he felt it was critical. Same thing. Every morning, he was out there greeting them, the head of the school. Uh, so great, great stories, Chiz. Josh, a little different seat you were as you mentioned earlier, you're working with school leaders. What have you seen change in, in the, the role of the school leader the past few years or 20 years as Chiz is talking?
1: Yeah, I, um, so a lot of what uh, Chiz said, actually, I was thinking of his, his ideas in there about, I was thinking as he was talking through some of the things he did, there's there's almost Chiz-isms, that there's things that, like, visit, you know, greeting everybody outside and things like that. But just to step back, you know, um, when I think about what's changed in Catholic schools, I'm not gonna dwell on it too much because there's a, there's a lot there, but um, at the elementary school level in particular, there's been such a retraction of, you know, just a way that the church has changed, whether it's, you know, support from the parish or from the diocese or archdiocese, it's just, it's, it's dramatically changed in that the work didn't go away, the need for it didn't go away, but it was increasingly pushed to the local level, meaning the school, the principal. And so you had a principal whose role was primarily to be the academic lead for a school who now is in charge of um, fundraising, um, spirituality or faith, um, uh, you know, it, it nurse or security, and, you know, just gonna list of all the things, technology, and there's it's not like, you know, maybe in a high school or some larger schools, um, a lot of these principals are asked do their own, they kind of bootstrap it. And so I think one is just the magnitude of the job has grown and the expectation for a singular person To be able to do a wide range of things and and, you know any of us who have hired you know it's hard to find someone who's good at one or two things never mind you know a whole range of things Mm -hmm. and so i think that is puts a lot of pressure on the job and you've increasingly some you know when a principal job opens up i you know i often hear you know can i take this on now i do think that's changing there's so many things happening that have recognized that the the job is is uh, untenable if not supported and so you know we're working on those things. Groups in New York or Philadelphia, or you know, on the list, everybody's trying to find ways to do it. And as always, um, strong leaders rise up and figure out a way to do it on their own. I mean, they're they're yeah. they're adjusting to that, and I think that's that can be lost. But I think in all of that, that you know, in a time when the world is increasingly complex, in a charged, in um, whether that's you know among your faculty and staff or among students or um, among parents, it, it is uh, difficult to be a leader in these times. And um, that doesn't mean that great people can't get into a challenging situation and succeed. But I do think it, it, it takes, you know, even more important to build that team, whatever that, whatever, you know, you mean by team, whether it's your your, your council, who do you go to for supports, or it's, you know, your, your kind of management team in the school, however you create that. Um, I also think it takes a hell of a lot of modesty and humility um, to know what you know, what you don't know. I think that's <laughs> I, I remind myself of that all the time because yeah, it's hard. It's hard to. Yeah. And I also think uh, to be reminded that it is a great gift to be a leader that, you know, it, it is while it's hard and it's challenging. It's also a great gift. It's uh, soul filling when you get a breakthrough, yep. which is you know, when he reference and I think it captures it perfectly that being a leader means you have to do a lot of minutia, a lot of things that others do not want to do. And it's getting into the minutia of things and solving issues. But it's also that grace of going out and seeing the students flourishing and succeeding or welcoming them and saying, we've built a great team, we've come together as a community, and I'm a part of helping to develop that. And I think never forgetting those pieces because there's a lot of dark moments and going out, like Chiz said, and, and walking around and being reminded, why am I doing this, I think is tremendous advice. and that, not to oversimplify, but I think that, you know, in a, in a rapidly changing world, especially in the elementary school Catholic principal, um, that's in all, in all leadership positions. But I see that particularly, um, you know, finding that grace and reminding yourself why you jumped in in the first place. You know, you know, Josh,
2: you said something that's so true and you, you were um, and I, I forgot to mention it, but the whole idea of the different constituencies that a school leader has to appeal to and and work with and the competing Uh, interests within those constituencies. In my job, I had the board, one, the faculty and staff, two, the students, three, uh, the alumni, four, and the parents, five. And and every- No one has strong opinions. (laughs) (laughs) And in this world that we live in today, those opinions are not only, especially with social media, they're voiced more often and and seemingly louder. And, And it makes it taxing and, and the, the, the successful school leader is someone who can really, um, you know, negotiate be- all those different constituencies and, and and try to appeal and appease all those different constituencies. And you, and you can't do it all the time because sometimes they're diametrically opposed on, on yeah. a particular issue. But you have to be strong and, and you have to spend a lot of time negotiating and listening and, and compromising.
0: That's exactly right.
1: I couldn't agree more. You
0: know the the other thing I'd say about school leaders that that I've seen is um, it's so important for them to hold the role lightly. Um, I've seen so many where the role becomes their identity, and they lose they lose their identity and they become all encompassing around this job, and and they're they're holding it so tightly because it's become who they are. And uh, mm-hmm. Father Creed, uh, Josh, who you've heard of many. Yeah. He's got, he says that line often, um, hold it lightly, you know, that it's, it's not your work, you know, in, in, in the Catholic schools, it's, it's God's work and you are an instrument exactly of right. him. You're not, you're not the job. And, um, it's I, exactly right. I've seen school. But Rob, of- The
2: tough part of that is that, um, in order to sometimes do the best job, you have to be that, that person. And, and, and you're totally right for your own personal health you also have to hold it lightly. So it's right. it's no it's, it's, a real. It's a real paradigm there. And uh, it's a uh, it's a balance. No, you're right, because you,
0: you got to be all in. Yep. And the faculty have to see that the kids have to see that the parents, but you can't be so all in that you lose yourself. It helps to have
2: a cadre of school leaders to have these discussions with and we used to meet um, with different groups of, of heads because in the independent school world and in, certainly in New England where I was in the boarding school world, there's only one person in that school that has that job and I assume it's the same thing in the Catholic uh, yeah. Yeah. world and so to have an a affinity group of, of heads to get together with to share a meal um, just talk for an hour uh, is it, it is so refreshing because you, you remember that other people Carry the burden that that you carry, and and it's it's even hard to talk with your spouse about it sometimes because they're not
0: living that that role. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they, yeah, they they don't get it exactly right. And it's one of the challenges the diocesan schools face is that they are true islands. Um, you know, if you're not part of the Big Shoulders Network, if you're not part of the Cristo Rey Network, if you're not part of the Jesuit Schools Network, you're an island. You know, a lot of these diocesan schools I work with, they they've got no one to talk to and. Um, it's one of the purposes and goals of Eiley is to to give them that that affinity group that they you know we we meet every month where we met yesterday and um, it's so needed yeah it's so and and I think it's important to be with a group not in your city because you can be more vulnerable you know if you're on with a, a school that's you know down the street you don't want to be vulnerable because you got to show that I'm I'm better than you you know we're we're kicking butt here we've got we're killing it. <laughs> uh, whereas if you're talking to a school in LA from Chicago, you can you can say this is a hard job, yeah. uh, and so that, yeah, that's where I think that national, um, I think Chizzy, you're you're talking about more of a uh, a national network to to voice that. Um, let's take a quick pause here before we come back and talk about. We we could go on and on here, but um, we're going to take a quick pause and hear from our sponsor. Catholic Virtual is the trusted online education partner of Catholic Schools Worldwide. We develop customized online learning solutions to meet the needs of our partner schools and their students. Visit our website at www.catholicvirtual.com to learn more. Now back to the episode. So uh, a big job of a private school leader is fundraising. And in our previous episode, we had a great conversation with Katie Everett about working with foundations. So We'll let her be the expert on that and turn to you two for raising funds from individuals um you know Chiz, if you could talk about alumni and then josh if you could talk about people that aren't alumni but have have an interest in a school so it's all different strategies and uh Chiz, why don't we start with you and, and what are best practices or you know if you're a, a young new head of a Catholic school, what would you share with them about raising funds from, from alumni and then Josh other constituents?
2: Well, the, the, the tough truth about that is, is that you have to get out from behind your desk and off campus and, and meet interested donors. And, and my best fundraising was always done, um, with, uh, relationships build up over a a number of years. So as, as head of school, I got to understand and really, um, really know what the donor was interested in, what, what made him or her um, tick and, and, and what they cared most about in my school and, and, you know, kind of wait for the right opportunity to say, oh, I, you know, I have a funding opportunity and I know exactly who that right the person is who will be interested in that, but cultivating relationships—it's—it's—it's—that's it. I mean, my 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 best fundraising successes—I um, can look back, and I almost didn't have to ask the donor for a gift. Mm-hmm. I would talk about a project that I had, and 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 any project that we initiated, I was incredibly passionate about. Whether it was. Building a new classroom building, or building a new dormitory, or building a new student center, or building a new athletic center at Salisbury, um, it 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 was because I was enhancing the lives of the students. That that was what I was passionate about. I wasn't passionate about being able to say, "Oh, I I, I did this." What I was passionate about was knowing that I was going to bring something to campus um, that that students would benefit from. It would make their lives richer and more, you know better and more meaningful. And, and, and so, um, I remember when I was, uh, we were building a new hundred thousand square foot athletic center, the first two donors I went to for, uh, leadership gifts, I just talked about what I wanted to do and was passionate about. And one looked at me and said, what do you need? And, and you know, and then it was, uh, okay. Then it was time, but, um, to have that conversation. And, and, uh, so it's really about building relationships. It's about getting off campus, and, and, and having lunch or tea or, um, you know, just visiting someone in their, at their business or in their home and, and, and growing that relationship and, and establishing a partnership in, in leading the school. Because the head of school and the donors need to work together in order to make those, those magic, magical moments happen
0: for the school. Just how much of your time would you say you were off campus? I would
2: well. I, I used to say that forty percent of the time I was I was actively fundraising. Now you can actively fundraise from your desk with with a phone call or an email or a postcard or you know anything like that. But um, I would travel generally one week out of every month throughout the school year. Okay, and it's hard. And when you're in a campaign, um, it's a little bit more. When you're not in a campaign, it's a little bit less. We had a very successful campaign. That concluded in 2014, and and in those months leading up to the finish, uh, I was away a lot, um, but it it paid great dividends. And and then after 2014, we let the donor base rest. <laughs> we weren't constantly constantly asking them for for a gift for a special project. And and uh, then I got to stay at
0: home a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> Josh, it reminds me. Chiz's comments remind me of Father Foley at DeRay who claims to this day that he never asked anyone for money. And he raised what, 50, 60 million, Josh.
1: Yeah. Never. I, you know, it's funny. I was saying, I was saying the exact same thing. That um, I was saying the exact same thing. I was saying I was trying to go back in time. I was trying to think. Have ever really? I think that there's, um, you know, like every every profession has a jokes about it, and, and it's like this. You just, you know, you got to go hit him up for money? Like someone's an ATM machine. Like, yeah, just give me two hundred thousand. Thank you. I'll check in with you <laughs> later. You know. It, 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 it it's it there's it, there's a you know the joke of that but there's also sometimes there's a reality of it like that even in the profession of the fundraiser, it's gonna be well i, I only raise six-figure gifts i only raise like i don't know i i i don't know what i raise i only know that um exactly which is is about relationships and that if you are passionate about your mission you are passionate about the work you're involved in and people are going to be drawn to that because whether it's because they're alumni of a school or because they believe in helping more children have access to it, or because whatever it is, you, you know, you're saving dogs from whatever. I mean, whatever that is, if you are passionate about it, people are going to want to be a part of it as well. And I, I, I mean, I had no formal training in fundraising except for Father Foley, which where I learned, you know, this is about relationships. I never viewed any of these people as a, you know, as a target. Some of these folks that I met when I was at Crease Ray 25 years ago, are some of my closest friends and, you know, it just it, it is about relationships. Chiz's point that I always um, to put a little saying to it: when the when the apple is ripe, it will fall. Yeah. That generally people that are there are wanting to be involved. They wouldn't be sitting around the table or engaged if they didn't want to be involved. Yeah. And when they hear something peaks their interest, to you know, Chiz is passionate. I watched and saw some of it. You know, his passion for Salisbury and the young men that came to schools and the education and. You know even the, the part of the chapel and the values and i've seen some of his speeches and you know it was hard not to be accepted to that so someone watching that would say gosh this person's doing a great job i can see the vision he has for the future i want to be part of that chiz we were thinking you said i think that that's more how it works than anything yeah i recognize you know in that and in, in some of our elementary catholic schools you know it's 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 growing the high schools generally have a, a much you know more well-established that's not all catholic elementary schools but increasing it's growing and, and it's getting um, we, we see them we work with them very much on digitizing their records first and foremost so taking all those paper records and getting like whatever is a thousand or it's twenty thousand their alumni records into a database hmm. and then consistently sending messaging not asking for money but this is a school you went to here's what it looks like today here's what's serving here are the programs we have going on here are some of the things we're working on and consistently and I would say the other thing is we've worked hard at is data, data, more data, and outcomes. Yeah. Show me that you're, and I would say the school, sometimes, you know, I like all of us, you get nervous, like, I, you know, is this good? Or am I not doing well? I don't feel like I'm doing, I, I have, my experience is that, um, whether it's good or bad, if you have a plan that you're going this way, then people will say, let me help you get there. And I think that's why it's important to share the data and the outcomes. So you can say in our plan, we're, you know, if we had a graduation rate of X, we want it to be Y, here's the things we're doing, we're looking for help to add more supports to the students, whatever that might be. But I think being open and transparent lends to people saying we want to be involved and support that.
0: That's interesting. Rob,
2: the, the greatest, uh, real quick, the, 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 I think the greatest, um, the most meaningful ask I ever made, I, I didn't ever ask um we were a boy school and and as such we were able to educate the the sons of our faculty and staff for free hmm. um which was a huge benefit if you had you know if you're yeah. a family with with three boys but the daughters we couldn't educate and and therefore it, it, there was an inequity there that i didn't like and over the years we lost some families who had a number of daughters who moved on to schools where their daughters could be educated for free at, at co-ed schools so i over a number of years, I just said, this is one of my ideas that I want to achieve before I leave. And it was to create a fund to um, support the educate the private education of daughters of faculty and staff members. And one day, a, a trustee, a guy on our board just said, look, I've been thinking about you, you. I've heard you talk about this a couple of times. I got you. And he had a family foundation that was aligned with what, what we wanted to do. And and that was it. It was done. The fa- the, the fund for daughters, uh, was, was fully, uh, subscribed. I mean, uh, f- fully funded. And, and, uh, the lift that it gave our faculty and staff was incredible. Hmm. That's interesting. And they were the
1: need, the vision, the response. And it's exactly. Hard,
2: it's hard to raise money for endowment. It's harder, I should say, to raise money for yeah. endowment. It's, it's a lot easier when you have a building that someone can put their name on or, a you know, but this was, um, this was so meaningful to me because it, 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 helped our, our faculty and staff. It helped our family. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, it was really a great moment.
0: Well, guys, um,
1: yeah. just real quick question, uh, you know, and, and, Chiz maybe too. I, I, and I don't know if you have any thoughts. I observe often, sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a person as a principal, who I've observed it's very successful because it's just natural and it's innate to them to, Fundraiser. They don't even know their are fundraiser. They're passionate about their mission. They're constantly establishing their vision and people coming involved. And there's others I've watched from the job who say, well, I'm not really a fundraiser. I'm not good at it. I, I don't know what I'm doing. And there's almost like this mystique about it. And I, you know, I've often tried to give advice or thoughts, but what would you say to a principal that came in and you know, very effective principal, a strong leader, not a good fundraiser. How would you you know, advise them to,
0: to, to start to build or to grow into that. That's a great question, Josh. Um, Chiz, you want to take it first?
2: Yeah, um, I, I got I've kind of a couple ideas. One, I think that there are um, organizations that can where you can go to workshops that, that can teach you kind of, you know how to do this. Um, there are organizations that you can hire who can um, come to your school and, and kind of work with you on this. I, I think it, it's no one it, very few people asking for money comes um, naturally to, to very few people. Yeah. Um, the, sometimes to get that, that, that ask out, I need a million dollar gift is like you're sweating. Uh, <laughs> I remember being a young head of school and, and uh, uh, it doesn't come naturally. Um, so, uh, but it does come with practice and it, and it gets easier. Um, if you fear it and therefore avoid it, you're never going to be any good at it. Um, sometimes it helps to have a partner who, uh, you know, maybe a a member of your board or, um, to, to, to go with you and, and so that you don't have the full burden on your shoulders. Um, but, uh, it's, it's about what we've been talking about. It's about getting out having those conversations and building relationships and again if you know if you're really passionate about what you do and, and you love your school and your mission and your kids that's 90% of it I mean just be, but being able to articulate that to the donor yeah 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 90% of it um, and and very often you won't even have to ask for that you know you, the donor will say as you said Josh, how can I help you And when yeah, you, you know. hear the how can I help you you know you're there.
0: Yeah. But, um, yeah, in the Catholic school world, Josh, there's a great book I would recommend by Henry Nowen called "The Spirituality of Fundraising." It's a short, small book that any new principal or president should should read, and it's um, it talks about fundraising as as part of your prayer life, as your spirituality. It's uh, to Chiz's point: if you believe in the mission, you want to spread this. You want yeah. everyone to hear about it and know about it, and um, and Chiz's idea of a board member, I remember John Father Foley would often have Rosemary Krogan with him. Um, yes. Uh, and that's a great idea, Chiz, of having a board member go with you and sort of soften soften it. Um,
2: it's, it's it's also, um, you know, in my graduate work, I, I took a class in negotiations and and it's helpful sometimes to have the two on one. Yeah. Uh, You know, in in a soft way, not that you're you know, not that you're ganging up, but um, it makes you more effective sometimes when you don't have to carry the conversation, when you can play off each other. So if you if you establish a good, strong relationship with a member of your board or um, even another donor of your of your school who who can kind of um, cajole (laughs) a fellow alumnus or a fellow parent or, 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 you know, um, please join me. Mm-hmm. Um, and or please join us in this
1: mission, That's in
0: great this effort, guys. I think the one thing just to
1: tag on, I think it's a good reminder for a lot of things in life. But the saying that something like "show me your calendar and I'll show you um, your priorities." Yeah, I, um, I think for for all of us, me included, yeah. looking backward at your calendar, and if you are saying, "I need," I'm not a, I'm not a natural fundraiser, or I don't feel comfortable doing it. Chiz, you said something about it, like it does become easier that even if it's an hour two hours, two hours a week, you say I'm just gonna focus on fundraising. And Jordan, it might be it, sending an email, making a phone call, but forcing you to set aside time consistently, yes. it becomes more right. natural. And I think I I mean I often look back at my own calendar and say, What have I been doing the last six months? Judas Priest, you <laughs> know, your, your hat together. I mean, it is, it's it's humbling to look at. My priorities are X and X isn't even involved in my calendar. So I, I do think that it's that's a, that's a great example.
0: Um, well, gentlemen, we could go on. We haven't even gotten to half of our subjects yet. So I'm gonna propose, this is part one of two podcasts. Uh, I'm not even asking you guys permission, but I'm gonna say we're gonna do a second one in a few weeks. So for our listeners, we've got a lot more that we wanna cover, but uh, time is coming short here. And uh, Josh knows this, we, he's already had this question, But is we ask every guest one final question. And so we're going to ask you it. Who is your greatest teacher and why?
2: Uh, I would say my father uh, is my greatest teacher. Um, he was a school man, uh, career educator, um, started out in the classroom and on the athletic field as a baseball coach. Um, he spent the better part of 50 years in independent schools and um that you know that and and did a lot of fundraising and this was at a school called hotchkiss school um and he wound up being the headmaster late in his career and um he just was so consistent and and loved the students and and had um great expectations and and led the way that um kids followed and and uh, to this day i meet these men who are uh, men and women, but, but, uh, Hotchkiss was a boy's school through, through about 1974. So the older alumni are all men. Um, and they would say, your father's the greatest guy. And he taught me X, Y, and Z. And, and I would walk through fire for him, or I would eat mm-hmm. through the locker room door to, to go on the athletic fields and play for him. And, um, that kind of loyalty, that kind of just, he was, he was wonderful. And, um, he, uh, he's still alive. Thank gosh. He's, uh, uh, 89 years old and, and still remembers we were having dinner the other night and, and he was telling a story about his father playing football in college and still remembered his father's football coach's name, which must've been in like 1926. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my goodness. But, uh, just uh, great values and, and always instilling values in kids and, um, doing things the right way.
0: That's awesome. Well, um, Chiz, thank you for joining us in the next class. Josh, welcome back. I look forward to continuing the discussion with you guys in a few weeks on another episode. To our listeners, thank you for joining us again, Uh, and we hope you will listen to the second segment of Josh and Chiz.